CorporalNetwork.com. This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where out of print is available again, and listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon affiliate links. Welcome to the Tome Book Club for August 2015. The Tome is a D&D news reviews and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book this time around is Grindel by John Gardner. And with us, as always, is Eric Paquette, our favorite Canadian. Hello! Or at least our favorite French-Canadian. I don't want to generalize. <laughs> uh. so, so for those who don't know uh, if you haven't read the book for the book club episode Grendel is a classic 1971 telling of part of the epic poem Beowulf from the perspective of the monster Grendel and to go along with this famous monster we have our noble knight pick of the episode an unpainted mini from Icor it's designed for a sci-fi game but with the right paint job looks like it could be right at home in a classic fantasy setting and it's only six dollars and fifty cents from noble knight right now hello i'm rpg podcasting celebrity james intercasso as you know my life is awesome my gaming collection is filled with out of print goodies no one else can seem to get their hands on i have plenty of free time to record podcasts write blog posts play games and hunt the most dangerous game I have tons of extra cash, which is evident in my caviar-filled swimming pool for the guest house of my third home in the Swiss Alps. And my mother is proud of me because I managed to do all this while supporting small businesses. My secret? NobleKnight.com, a brick-and-mortar game store that has a great online presence. So I feel good shopping there, but I can buy anything, anytime, just by walking to my computer. I don't even need to put on my gold-plated pants. At Noble Knight, they have new and out-of-print products at a discounted price to give me more cash for reckless celebrity activities like bear shaving. And Noble Knight will buy back the old products I'm not using anymore, which funds my tiger shaving. So, if you want more money, more free time, a better game collection, and a better you, Check out NobleKnight.com, where Out of Print is available again. And tell them Big Jimmy from the Tome Show sent you. And now, on to Grindel. Eric, you seem the most literate of the bunch. What is Grindel about? Well, it's the the Beowulf story, but told from the perspective of the, the monster Grindel. It follows True's life and events and childhood and it's very philosophical and deals a lot there's lots of stuff happening in the book mm-hmm. yeah and and I it's tricky to call it the Beowulf story because it, it's almost a Beowulf prequel you know because most of the book takes place before Beowulf um, the, the epic poem of, of unknown authorship um takes place and the the story of Beowulf goes well beyond Grindel, right? Grindel is the first of the three monsters that Beowulf faces. Right. So and, and so this sort of tells the story of, of who is this Grindel monster? Where did the where did Grindel come from? And and yeah, you're right, it's really philosophical. Well it deals with nihilism, existentialism, uh 
lots of different philosophical stu stuff. I'm like, well, I, I, I read it twice and I was like, still absorbing the information, what, what it had. Mm. So, yeah, if, I, so if I don't want to read for philosophy, is this still a good book for me? I think it can be interesting in terms uh, of like D&D campaigns because one of the philosophical threads that I don't think uh, requires a lot of um, philosophical knowledge is like the difference between monsters and heroes, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, he, he describes the humans where the heroes all come from and it's like, well, I'm the monster and they're the hero, like the good things and... and Hero heroic and all that stuff but yet look at the stuff that they actually do and it includes uh exploring concepts like the uh, sexual assault and rape and mm -hmm. and all those things like the humans are doing them <laughs> yeah. but he's the monster well but at the same time like he addresses like how horrible humans are from his well, from grindle grindle discusses that from his perspective right but at the same time but, like it's never grindle's never not horrible too oh yeah no 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 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's like, but, look at how horrible they are. Now I'm going to go eat some, you know? <laughs> yeah, and he's like, I'll eat that one, but I won't eat this one just because I want to keep him guessing. And yeah. He's not yeah. a hero. <laughs> no, he's not. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're, you're supposed to maybe understand and empathize with the monster a little bit more, but you're not supposed to, like, completely sympathize with it, you know? No. Right. There's, certain, there's certain points in the story where you think, oh, he's going to turn, but then, nope, he goes right back and being mean and bad and just mm -hmm. disgusting and and sometimes that is um i get it, it almost feels like in a philosophical sense it almost feels like it's a you can't escape your nature conversation um and then sometimes it happens not just because he it's his nature but sometimes it happens because the humans then don't see the opportunity yeah. and and do something horrible to him you know right uh he also spends I think a fair bit of time or it shows the frustration he has because he as we can tell from the book like is able to have these complex thoughts like he's not s simplistic in his thinking but he doesn't have anyone really to talk to for most of the book yeah and even when he shows up in in the mead hall right and and tries talking to people um they have no idea what he's saying like the right. the humans who hear him, like he can understand them fine, but they can't understand them hardly at all. And it takes most of the book before anybody even starts to figure out. Oh wait, I think this Grindel character might actually be intelligent, and he's trying to talk to us. Right. So I think I think it can provide some interesting ways to do monsters in D anD D and whatnot. So what's the lesson? How can how can Grindel teach me to do monsters in a more interesting way? Um, I think you could provide an opportunity for your players to come up to, against something that seems foreign to them because they can't un quite understand it, but yet isn't, uh, like still has some intelligence mm -hmm. and if they, if they work at it, could maybe unlock it. Okay. Well, D&D has had pla classic times where you, you could play as the monstrous creatures over time and yeah so you could have a campaign where the group is the monsters and dealing with the humanity which don't doesn't quite understand them mm -hmm. and treats them as monsters 
Yeah, it, it's on one hand, like I think there's a lesson you can take from the story that you could apply to your D and D monsters in terms of making the monsters sympathetic. Um, on the other hand, um, the book, like we mentioned, the book doesn't really make Grindel sympathetic because he's still horrible and and nasty and destroys and kills people. You know, like it's just a matter of course. Well, of course I am. That's what I do. That's what I you know. That's my nature, right? Um. So, but at the same time, like, you do sort of start to empathize a little bit um, with Grindel. And and that is a lesson that can lead to sympathy in monsters, I guess, in a game. Yeah, well, or even just, it's a logical fallacy to sometimes that people think that just because something's bad, that taints where the information comes from. So, like, and that would be another thing you could do is, like try to have cases where you shouldn't just dismiss someone uh, because they do bad things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess, like, for me, the big one is just, it. for me, the book really spoke to the the parts of her classical heroic stories I don't like, which is, like, the very stark one group is good and the other group is bad. Oh, sure. Well, and that's, I mean, that's a classic trope because it's easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's classic in D and D because it's easy, but it's it's often it's you know it's ne- it's become almost cliche at this point to to say that the most interesting villains are the ones who think they're the good guys, right? Right. So, which is is at the same time I don't know that that's what Grindel is. Right? Well, but but the thing is, Grindel you... never thinks of himself as the good guy. Right, and and the thing is, I I care less about. The Grendel in that in in that particular uh, line of re- thought that I am the fact that like the heroes keep being that the humans consider are considered heroes, but in reality they're doing all these horrible things. Oh sure. Yeah, no, I'd I'd say um, if anything, um, there are no heroes in the story of Grendel. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Nobody is good. It's just monsters versus you know monstrous people. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of um, Wheel of Time. I think it's the White Cloaks. Because they kind of take on the symbolism of uh, Western European good. But they just do very horrible things. Maybe we should read the Wheel of Time series sometimes, because I never have. Okay. I I hope that's not too spoilery. No, because I won't remember if I ever do get around to reading it. And Eric, you said you've never read it either? I have never read it. I think sometime we have to pick up the book one of the Wheel of Time and see what we think. Cool. I suspect but, we will not be able to pull off an interview with Robert Jordan, but no, we get uh, <laughs> Brandon Sanderson who finished the series. Oh, is it okay? Yeah. Uh, for Grendel, from from a game master perspective, you can also uh, bring in elements of a monster who knows they are the villain. I've done it that before in a campaign where mm. I had a elven illusionist who he, he realized that he was the bad guy mm-hmm. and the PCs were the heroes. He knew it. He figured it out. So you, you just play with those tropes. So you played with the fact that, okay, well, the standard trope is that the heroes will win. So how can I play with that and still get what I want? So does... <laughs> Does knowing you're the villain mean that you 
aren't don't still feel like you're the good guy? Like I'm thinking of like uh like a Lex Luthor type character. I yeah. think he recognizes that everybody sees him as the villain. Yeah. And he behaves accordingly, but at the same time, he still sees himself as the good guy. He just doesn't think anybody, you know. He, it's just that he's misunderstood. Is that yeah. is that the story of Grindel? Does Grindel just feel misunderstood? I think he definitely feels misunderstood. Uh, but does Grindel feel like he's the good guy? I don't think he feels himself as the good guy. He he feels himself misunderstood, but he also realizes, especially after meeting up with a dragon, which actually is one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah. But, uh, and realizes, well, it doesn't really matter anymore. So you just realize, okay, yes, I'm the bad guy and everything else really not that great. So might as well just continue being bad. Yeah, I want to get to the the dragon and the mother. Um, but let's talk a little bit about um, how easy the book was to follow. Um, you know, it's not an epic poem like the original Beowulf, right? Um, but does the book go from scene to scene in a way that's easy to sort of connect the dots and figure out what's going on all the time? I feel like there were times that I started losing the thread and I would have to to stop and pick it up. Yeah. yeah. That's why I asked because I had the same yeah. experience. And I, <laughs> I wanted to see uh, where I, I was the same thing. That's why I read it twice. And mm-hmm. even after reading twice, I was before, before watching, before discussing here, I was on Wikipedia just <laughs> myself with the, Tracy, and Tracy and I were literally just doing the exact same thing before we called you and added you to the call, <laughs> refreshing our memories from the Wikipedia page. Yeah, it is. It it brings up a lot of topics. It, uh, I listened to it. It's only five hours long, and mm-hmm. it goes through. A, I think it was five hours, or a little over, but it goes through a lot of different things. I mean, like we talked about the uh, like humans seem to be just. To do monstrous things as well. He meets a dragon. There's also like a whole entire conversation about how government only exists to uh, oh, yeah. back up the people in power. Uh, he even has a conversation about how he doesn't eat everyone because if he ate everyone, he wouldn't have anyone else to eat in the future. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like he's the farmer of the mm-hmm. people. Yeah. <laughs> so there's just tons of stuff going on. Well, and, and he's and, constantly like, spying on like. I, Sometimes I swear, like he's like when Beowulf shows up, he's like in his cave, but listening in on a conversation that's happening like a long ways away down at the ocean side, right? And then there's other times that he's like literally sort of stalking around in the in the shadows and watching and listening in from there. And somehow over the years of doing that, nobody notices. Right. One thing I'm curious because since I read the book and you guys listen, Mm -hmm. there are times where in the book they would. Uh, have two versions of the sa- of a word in the same sentence, and oh. the way they would do it is they would put the different like I, I have at one point like it's grave, it's either, either morality or mortality, and the T is in parentheses. How did they, did they do something like that in the audiobook? I don't remember that being in the audiobook at all. Yeah. Okay. So no, they must have just picked one of the words and done it. <laughs> so, yeah, no. Okay, that's interesting. Because then, because that that is that's a whole that's a whole uh, narrative concept there that's that was that's not explored in the audio version. No. So. And it plays into the whole uh, philosophy of the, of it all too. Yeah, I know. That's why, like, when you're reading it, like, okay, which is also adds to the trying to follow the thing when they start doing those little tricks, which mm-hmm. which are neat, but also. 
makes it hard to be sometimes so yeah so so this is one of those books where i kind of wish i had read a little bit of the background before i read the book right um i kind of wanted to go into it relatively blank and i usually do um and then i can do some research afterwards to see you know what i missed or what was going on or whatever uh but if i'd have known that um this was a you know 1971 book that was um exploring philosophical western philosophical concepts uh largely dealing with uh, jean paul sartre then then i probably would have looked for those things more than i did right um because there was a lot of places where I could, where I was having trouble following along because it just seemed to go from scene to scene to scene without much transition. Um, but if I'd have recognized that that was the author specifically just jumping from, let me explore this philosophical concept to, now we're going to explore this philosophical, you know, and jumping, that's what he was doing. He was really yeah. jumping around between philosophical concepts. The scenes were almost incidental, right? The narrative um, was less important than the exploration of the, philo- of the philosophy. Right. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I, it's tricky because sometimes I don't know what books I should be, you know, looking a little bit up before I read it, and which ones I don't want to spoil myself, you know. So. Uh, so so Tracy, were you gonna say something? I was gonna say, do you want to talk about the dragon? Yeah. So let's talk about there. There's other main characters, right? There's of course the the, I guess antagonist of the story, which is what Hrothgar. Um, is the name of the king that eventually Beowulf comes to save that who owns the, the or controls the mead hall or whatever hangs out in the mead hall and that's where Grendel goes and attacks and that he's being spied on the whole time and provides the commentary of of the role of government because he's a king. Yeah. Well, you actually see in the book him his rise to power. Yeah, yeah, you do. You the, he starts to sort setting of setting up of the civilization. Yeah, he starts as sort of a minor lord and then unifies some people and, and defeats his enemies. And, um, you know, so you see Hrothgar's rise to power, like you said. Um, and then you also have um, Grendel's mother. Right. What are our thoughts about Grendel's mother? Not much. I mean, yeah. Gr- Grendel doesn't have much to say about her, right? Um, yeah. Grendel doesn't seem to like his mom. Well, I think, like, a lot of times he's cursing the fact that she can't really speak to him. Yeah. And doesn't really provide any comfort. Doesn't provide comfort, doesn't provide guidance. And I'm I'm not entirely... Like, if I think back to the beginning of... Or towards the beginning of the book, when, when we kind of start with the birth of Grindel, wasn't he, like, being formed off of a tree or something? Is that a thing that I read or heard? Like the humans found him as some sort of growth coming off of a tree, and and then he was and he was sentient, you know, through that process of of his development, and then eventually he came off and became Grendel. Uh, so according to Wikipedia, okay, thank you, because I can't rec- I can't remember that part uh-huh. right now. Uh, it said he became wedged in the tree when he be- went out exploring. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. There, there was a part. Uh, Get rid okay. of. The- Humans found him in a mm-hmm. tree, took him in, and they were, he was taking. He was interacting them. They didn't know what he was. Yes, I just then, I just recall that that even his narrative or his his mon, uh, inner monologue uh, through that process made him almost seem like semi sentient at the time, not you know fully developed. But that could just be youth. Yeah, and well, he also falls asleep for a while and then is woken up, mm-hmm. and he can understand them, but they can't understand him. Right. Which frustrates him, and right, 
And then mom's no help because mom doesn't really raise him. Mom just is wandering around in the cave because they just live in the same place, really. Right. <laughs> it's like she's here, but she's not here. And uh, who is it that plays the mom? And there was a movie recently, a Beowulf movie. Was it? And, and the oh, mom. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Jolie. Um, and that that is not the Grendel's mother that I that I picture from this book. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> she's some sort of hideous creature, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, yeah. So I don't know if uh, John Gardner or uh, or. or th- He's saying that Sartre or whatever has some sort of um, issue with with mothers, right? Uh, but Grindel certainly doesn't seem to appreciate his mother. But his mother doesn't really do much of anything for him anyway, so he doesn't have much reason to appreciate her. Right. And then there's the dragon. And, and it, those are the three sort of... Um, th- those three characters, Grindel, Grindel's mother, and the dragon, are also the three monsters that Beowulf slays. Right. Um, and eventually gets to the dragon. So let's talk about the dragon because uh, I think we all liked the dragon. I know Tracy always likes dragons. Dragons are the awesomest. Especially when they're in du- inside of a dungeon. Mm. <laughs> it's a cave. Dragons must, dragons must be free to fly around. And <laughs> Okay. So let's talk about the dragon. Tell, uh, somebody tell me what, what was the deal with the dragon. Go ahead, Eric. I'm actually trying to remember how you got there, but... Well, that's one of the things, right? Is that, so far as I recall, uh, and then suddenly Grindel was talking to the dragon. Right? Yeah, no. that, that was yeah. the transition. <laughs> so and, was, the, dra- the dragon seems to have prophecies about the future and knows a lot about stuff. And he's very nihilistic of his approach of life and how, or not nihilistic, probably more fatalistic in his mm. approach. Yeah, fatalistic? Yeah. Now, so does the dragon have prophecies of the future i i think i remember them disorder that the dragon sort of described it as he just sees all time simultaneously or whatever yeah so he just it's not really like he's prophesizing what's going to happen it's just he's he knows it's going to happen he can already see it is the word omniscient a little bit yeah yeah a little yeah. bit omniscient i don't know how well maybe he is omniscient because yeah. he knows what's going to happen to grindle even though he's not there when it happens to him <laughs> Right, and he, at Grendel at least, believes that the dragon has enchanted him. Right. Yeah, Enchant- cursed him. So that, so no, that, enchant okay. him uh, with the invulnerability of not being being killed at the end. Yeah, which Wikipedia reminded me is a thing that was in the original Beowulf poem as well, that Grendel couldn't be harmed by swords generally mm. because of some enchantment. Which, which leads to the interesting interplay between Grendel and... Is it Unferth? Uh huh. The the poor hero that just wants to slay Grendel and yet cannot, and mm-hmm. Grendel just lets him keep trying. Yeah, he just keeps and, and like mocks him like over time. Yeah. Just keeps coming back it's like, oh, you ready now? Oh, oh, no, I, nope, still can't do it. You know. It was one of the it was one of the parts of the book that made me laugh out loud. Was um. Uh, Grendel is talking about how Unferth has come, like, yet again to try to, like, get there mm-hmm. and kill him. And he's, like, pretty much dead. And in in the cave, he finally reaches Grendel's area of the cave, and he's he's so far gone, he's gonna die. And so Grendel takes him, 
brings him back to town, and then says he eats a few townspeople just because he doesn't want them to think he's changed his mind about who he is. Mm-hmm. That, like, he's turned a corner or anything. Right. No, no, no. I didn't save him because I'm a good guy now. I saved him because I want him to just really feel the pain of, of the fact that he just can't do this one thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like Grendel just torturing the guy. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, good! You found a purpose in life, and it's killing me. <laughs> See how that goes for you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is something you could use in D and D game, but your players might start to hate you. Oh, yeah, real bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit the recurring villain, but it's even worse because it's not—it's not even that you can't um, that you can't kill Grendel. You can't even hurt Grendel. So it's not like Grendel just keeps getting away. He just keeps showing up and you keep attacking him and he eats a few people, you know, innocents nearby and then walks away, you know, and there's nothing you can do about it. Just constantly mocks the the PCs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that was fun. But the dragon I thought was really cool um, in as much as this concept of a character that can see all of time and has this conversation about, no, and just because I know it's happening doesn't mean I'm causing it, right? Uh, it's going to happen. There's nothing I can do to make it not happen. Um, if I do something, um, if I do something, it's because I always did that thing, right? It can never be different than, than what I've seen, um, which is very fatalistic, almost nihilistic, um, approach to the whole thing and so his sort of advice to Grindel is you know so there's nothing you can do about it I know you're going to die I know how you're going to die so you might as well just collect treasure and sit on it because that's what I do because I'm a dragon I just collect treasure and I sit on it which of course doesn't even fit the philosophical concept because why would he tell Grindel to do something that he can already see Grindel's not going to do (laughs) right well because he actually knew that he was supposed to say that (laughs) yeah because he yeah because he saw that he said it yeah I suppose and there's a, there's even one moment when he's trying to explain to Grendel like a situation like what's going on or whatever, and he starts talking about like atoms and molecules and things. Although he doesn't describe them in those words, but that's sort of where he's at. Like he's describing something through the lens of modern science, and then it gets to a point where it's like, oh yeah, except you know none of that makes any sense to you. And Grendel's inner monologue is just like this guy's babbling and he's I don't he's incoherent and clearly he's not going to be helpful to me at all. Yeah, you know. I just really enjoyed I, I kind of wanted to throw in a character that's just completely omniscient, but also completely fatalistic, um, you know, and just starts describing things like that in a way that is, is just wacky and weird. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to make it so in a way that wacky and weird, but that even the modern characters wouldn't fully understand. Yeah. That way, that way that you can get from the rest of the group the reaction of what the hell is this guy talking about? Yeah. It's a, it's not entirely different than uh, Paul Kemp in one of his books and one of his series had a character who told prophecy through numbers, right? It was all weird mathematical formulas that maybe kind of sort of would make sense to us now, but was just weird symbols to, uh, for the characters at the time. Right. Did we read that Tracy? Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's, written... it's, it's not entirely different than that. Yeah. And I, oh yeah, no, totally. And I also just like the repeated Grendel kind of grumbling because he realizes the dragon was right yet again. Yeah. <laughs> throughout the rest of the book. Uh huh. Well, good. Any other uh, deep philosophical conversations we need to have about Grendel? Be a short one. 
It was a short what? book. It's a short book, and it's a lot of deep philosophy, and it's hard to follow, like from moment to moment. So you can't. I have a hard time like talking about the scenes. Yeah. Because it's not even necessarily discussing this, uh, a story of something that happened to this this monster. It is this monster waxing philosophical about different things that have happened. You know. Yeah. So. It could be something a series of for D and D. You could have a series of adventures that each focus on a different philosophical theme that are just connected because of those philosophies. So, yeah, and also I was just thinking, where in the wheel of alignment do we think he is? Hmm. Uh, my gut is saying neutral evil. Yeah, because, I mean, he certainly comes off chaotic. But because we have access to his inner monologue, we recognize that there is a lot of order to his thinking. Right. Um, but, he fact- spe- but he specifically acts in such a way that nobody recognizes that, that order. You know? Yeah. yeah, like he decides not to kill Welthow? I forget how to pronounce her name. Mm-hmm. The, the, the wife? Yeah. yeah. Hro- uh, he- was it Hoth- Hrothgar's wife? I believe so. Okay. Yeah, uh, like, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Uh, yes, Wife of Hrothgar. Uh, yeah, because he's, he's like, well, whether I kill or not kill it doesn't really mean anything, so, uh, but humans are going to think I'm going to kill, so I'm going to do the opposite. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which comes across as chaotic, but isn't. No. He, he, he feels a lot like I say neutral evil because he feels a lot like he's doing evil for evil's sake. Well, I don't even know that he's doing evil for for evil's sake. I think he's doing evil because it is in his nature to do evil. Yeah, I, don't, I think that is something that what he he doesn't have a choice as to whether he's evil. Um, in, in the philosophical concept, right, is that that Grendel was born evil and cannot escape that that part of his nature. Yeah. At least that's how he he thinks. Well, that's certainly what it plays off as too, right? Because right. there, there are those moments when he has an, an opportunity for redemption, but he's still horrible, right? And even when he's not meaning to be. Right. Although sometimes it is kind of like touching on the, uh, is it actually evil or is it that whole nothing really matters? Um, Nihilistic? Yeah. Uh-huh. See, this is the thing about discussing philosophy, is that people require a lot of time to silently think about things. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so I definitely think it's a good example of a book of how you can bring philosophy into fantasy. Mm. It definitely does it. that. I, I, have, I, I think it would be harder to do um, this kind of bringing philosophy into fantasy um, because so much of the philosophy is happening in an inner monologue, and that's just not... Uh, I mean, in a and d game, I mean. Um, oh, beca- because in a and d game, you don't get a lot of the inner monologue <laughs> sort of yeah. conversation, so... Unless you have, like, a, a psychic, psionic character or whatever that can read minds. Yeah. yeah. But that might be pretty boring. And then took the time to do so every time you ran into a monster. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I think the best campaign sort of to have 
uh, campaign setting to have for D and D to explore philosophy would be Planescape. Sure, and you can and you can do that. And you can definitely explore philosophy in D and D. I just think it has yeah. to be much more overt, right? Yes, because there, the, there, if you run into Grindel in my in my D and D campaign, it's just going to look like another chaotic neutral or chaotic evil beast that's rampaging through the area and you can't figure out its motivation because its motivations are so incredibly weird and complex, you know? So it just looks like another monster that keeps killing that we need to uh, figure out yeah. how to get rid of. Yeah, well, I wouldn't do it in the, from the point of view of Grendel. I mean, you could have random encounters because in some ways he kind of has random encounters with different mm -hmm. uh, people who often bring up these various philosophical uh, differences to him, like the guy that's like, oh, the government's just to, to increase or shore up the power of the already powerful. But yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's that one moment when Grindel uh, poses as a god. <laughs> that was fun. He convinces the one priest that he is the destroyer of, of their, of their uh, religion. Well, and, and, and the character's name is Orc. Yeah, which is, which is weird because this is this is post Tolkien, right? So orcs are a thing, and I, you have to assume that that John Gardner knew of orcs. Was that intentional? Was that an illusion? Although the spelling's a little different. That's what I was wondering, but uh -huh. I have no yeah, uh, I idea. I have no because <laughs> the, the the spelling was O R K. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they're also they're sitting in. Is it that they're just sitting in a circle of Danish gods? Yeah. Is that? Is that? <laughs> well, and and it's not. And there's there's some weird discussion of deities and stuff there too. Because there's the there's earlier in the book there's the the shaper who shows up who is always just described by by Grendel as the shaper, um, but is like a what like a bard. Yeah, it was more of a bard singing tales and stuff like that. Right, but but uh, wasn't there a sort of monotheistic bent to to the the stories and the songs that the shaper did, or am I just making that up in my in my own interpretation of what I heard? I can't remember if it was the shaper. It appears that the um, orc was doing monotheistic stuff. Yeah, but orc was doing monotheism sort of within. Um, like there was a pantheon of gods, and Orc focused in on this one, okay, sort of god, um, as I understand, sort of that that yeah. So there was some monotheism in that, but it's a different sort of monotheism. Yes. Um, but for some reason, I almost thought that that the shaper was bringing um, a little bit of of Christianity into into the mix. But that may have just been my interpretation, which happens when you have a. a uh, a book like this that's so philosophical, right? Yeah. You bring a lot of yourself into it, too. Because he really doesn't... He really... Grindel really doesn't like the Shaper. Um, but gives the Shaper, like, a lot of power. Right. So. And then the Shaper dies because he was old when he showed up, right? Yeah. <laughs> and this book takes place over the course of many, many years. Right. So, would Grendel in D and D terms be its own uh, monster, or will, or is there a monster that we can fit Grendel to it? Well, I think Grendel has to be is, it has to be unique. Yeah. 
I think uh, I mean, Grindel is not a, a horde of Grindels. Grindel is, is um, singular. I mean, I don't no. think Grindel is even the same kind of monster as Grindel's mom. No. I think it's more of the like classic, uh, what is it, like the, the Greek sort of concept of, of monsters where they're, they're relatively in- unique and individual, even though now in D&D we have classic D&D or classic Greek monsters that were maybe unique at the, you know, in Greek literature yeah. that are now you know, flying around Faerun by the thousands. But could we do that? Could, can we match a, a D&D monster to Grendel and have it in the world be that unique? Mm. I know the classical in D&D for the unique monster is a Tarrasque, but is that limited? Can we have it limited to, to being a Tarrasque? I mean, I mean but Tarrasque isn't the only unique creature in D&D. It's just probably maybe the only uh, unique creature in D&D that shows up like in a typical monster manual. Yeah. But like we, we, we have demon lords and, and devils that are individualized and unique. And I mean, every adventure you buy has unique creatures or monsters. Yeah. So that's not unheard of um, oh. to do unique. I don't know, like, Grindel's tricky because he's really powerful yeah. in that he's really hard to kill and can basically do whatever he wants. Um, and I don't know that you can create a bunch of those or make that generic and still make them that powerful um, because he's, but it's certainly not like the Tarrasque, right? The Tarrasque no. is, is unique and singular because it's this massive Godzilla thing that rampages through the multiverse. Yeah. Um, Grindel's not that. It's a much smaller story. Yeah. So how do you make something that, that is f- suited to something small but is also like impervious? That's not unique, you know? I'd make him unique. I think I, yeah, I think I'd have to make him unique. I don't think he'd I'd... be like the heroic level version of the Tarrasque. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah, and then finally a uh, uh, a mid tier character shows up and defeats him with science and then violence. Science and violence. <laughs> that's how we so- that's how we solve problems because we're human. Science yes. and violence. Together, not like those are the two options. You have to do them both. Yeah. Sort of feel like we're science has violence. Yeah. (laughs) Sort of feel we're we're, we're verging onto atomic robo now. Yeah, that's actually really interesting that you made that connection, Tracy. The science and violence thing, because it was written in the seventies in the midst of the Cold War, right? And so science and violence were a major theme of the time period. I didn't even think about that. I don't remember how much of. That being how Beowulf defeats Grendel was part of the original. Was there a science angle to the original? I mean, it may not have been called science because it's old, but yeah, Do you, I don't know. I say, who remembers the original Beowulf? No, I haven't. I or, haven't read the original. I saw the movie that one we, we talked about that has Angela Jolie in it, which is more of an animated, but it's computer animated, but yeah. yeah. So. I read the original in like high school, but that's been a few years. So, yeah, I can't remember if there was a science angle to it or not. But that's an interesting because that adds a whole other theme. Uh, not that there's not enough themes, right? Yeah. Of all the different philosophical themes that that get explored, right? But that's interesting. Yeah, yeah it it doesn't and 
I'm just looking at the Wikipedia thing real quick to try to jog my memory, and it just says that the only reason Beowulf doesn't use any weapons is because he thinks he is the equal, not that hmm. uh, Grendel is necessarily impervious sure. in this in this area. Yeah. Like I, I I know he was, but it just it wasn't like oh I'm gonna like talk to you for a while and then. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, and Beowulf is is uh, Grendel. Even before he knew, of course, that Beowulf was going to be the one to to, to kill him, um, describes Beowulf as um, particularly horrific himself. Right, just this massive lumbering mountain of a man. Right. Like you get the impression that Grendel is afraid of Beowulf in a way that we haven't seen Grendel be afraid before. Yeah. And then he dies. The he end. thinks he's happy. <laughs> he wonders if he's happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he doesn't know because he's never felt happy before. So Grindel said, sad. <laughs> <laughs> "You know, in the in the sense of he eats people on a regular basis just because he should." Keeps him feeling alive. It's that whole you empathize, but you you can't really sympathize because he's a horrible person. So, last thoughts on Grendel. Can we have heroes without Grendels? Yes. Because there's, a, I think that's part of it. Is that? Yeah, no, that's the that's part of the conversation. All right, because like, he's like, well, well, if I don't terrorize these people, then there's nothing for them to fight against, and yeah, therefore they, they can't be heroic. But I, but that the I think. The question that Grindel misses, and maybe John Gardner misses, who knows, um, is that are they really even heroes? Like, heroes are a thing, but do these people really qualify as heroes just because they're the champions that are supposed to kill the monster? Right. I, I think I would argue that a hero is a very different thing than just somebody who kills things for you. Right. But yeah. I mean, I think heroes have to have obstacles to overcome and in, in in literature that is usually some sort of villain or antagonist um so in that sense no you can't have heroes without a grindle um but i don't think that the obstacle has to come in the form of a grindle like character himself you know right yeah and there it is a lot of deep thoughts <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a book that made you think a lot yeah i think i'm actually gonna listen to it again and so we'll uh think less deeply next month when we read an eberron novel is that the plan well not uh, i guess technically over the over the next two months yeah of course when this comes out for people listening (laughs) who knows it might be next month it might be next week get ready All right, let's wrap this up. And that's the end of this episode of the Tome Show Book Club. We want to thank our sponsor, Noble Knight, as well as listeners like you. Thank you for using the uh, Tome Show's Amazon affiliate links that you can find over at thetomeshow.com. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. 
And you can find show notes and other great Tome Show shows, as well as that affiliate link, over at thetomeshow.com. That's our pensive thoughts on Grindel. <laughs> Next up, we're going to Eberron to read Night of the Long Shadows by Paul Crilly. Until then, keep turning the page, Tomites! I'm on the wall.